Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Ranger Games, a story of soldiers, family, and an inexplicable crime. The debut book by Ben Blum. The book is both a heartfelt and analytical investigation into a truly bizarre heist for which Blum's own cousin was charged and eventually convicted. Ranger Games looks into the culture of military conformity and acquiescence. From Doubleday Canada, it's in bookstores now. For a stiff one, we're going to look at the Liberal government's new tax plan, explain why you'll probably survive it, and why an extra 65 million Canadians can make this so much simpler. I'm Ashley Chinati. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McBann. From Canada Land, this is Commons. This summer, the Liberals unveiled a new tax plan, and boy, oh boy, are there questions. It seems like nobody knows what the hell this tax plan is all about. So we, the incredible team at Commons, are going to break it down for you. So I'm going to need that shot. I think we need to (laughs) unpack this a little bit more. So all of this sounds super complicated and the kind of thing that nobody, except for like the super rich, would ever be using or someone who can at least hire a fancy accountant. So to find out who would actually be affected by this. We talked to Stephen Gordon, a professor of economics at Laval University, to, to get a more of a sense of, of whether this is something that would actually affect you or me. Well, this is quite the issue. It pretty much exploded this week, eh? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still kind of surprised at this because it really shouldn't be that big a deal, but I, there it is. I'm more of the uh, taxation neophyte here, despite being a lawyer. So my question for you is, can you explain these changes to me like I'm a five-year-old? Well, uh, no, because if you're a five-year-old, it doesn't, that doesn't affect <laughs> okay. you. Okay, how about if I'm a 
clueless 19-year-old university student who's a first-year finance or economics major? <laughs> okay, well, the uh, basic idea is that um, small businesses uh, have special tax privileges generally designed to promote, you know, the starting and development of start small businesses. And some of these are being used or have been used by people who with uh, reasonably high incomes or very high incomes to avoid taxes. Now, the, we use the word avoid here be, to make it clear. This activity is legal. We're not talking about tax cheats here. Tax evasion is illegal. You know, that's a separate issue. Tax avoidance, some people call it tax planning, is using the law to minimize your tax burden. So you already explained the basic premise, which is to tighten up on some of these tax avoidance strategies that the richest use in Canada. One yeah. of those is the idea of income sprinkling. Uh, so how how would you explain that? Yes, uh, the you know so sp- income sprinkling works uh, as though you uh, set up a, a company, you name your children or other family members as co-owners, even if they didn't make, may actually make any capital investment. And then using, uh, because they're owners, they have rights to dividends. So some of the income would be, would be transferred as dividends to these other family members. And because the other family members would have low, you know, much lower income, they would also pay low or no taxes on that income. So why do we have income sprinkling? Like, how did it come to bear? Is it like a vestige from when men went to work and women stayed at home? And so they were kind of trying to split income within the family? Part of it actually goes back to the reason why people were using it in the first place. Uh, one, one of the uh, stories we, we know is that uh, in the Ontario doctors' negotiations, they actually changed the rules to make it possible to do this. And because they could do that, uh, all of a sudden the pressure for higher fees went away because doctors could increase their incomes, their after-tax incomes, without necessarily charging higher fees. So this is one reason certainly why doctors are, uh, are indifferently upset about it. So what exactly are the liberals proposing to do here? Are they trying to get rid of income sprinkling entirely and raise taxes on capital gains for smaller corporations? Or are they just changing it? They're just changing it. They're trying to get rid of the income sprinkling. That's actually not that big a deal. Uh, the One of the things that really is uh, generating a lot of heat is the, uh, the rules on passive income investment. Now, that's where you'd park, you know, and, 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 and like a stock or bond portfolio in the business and let the you know the income that's generated there accumulate in the business away from the personal income tax. Uh, that's another thing, and the what the rules are going to do is make it much less attractive to do so. And that's another thing that is getting people upset because they, a lot of people have planned uh, and intend to plan uh, using uh, using the, the uh, private corporations as a way to to save and accumulate income interest income without uh, having to pay any personal income tax. So I keep hearing this 73% figure, the 73% tax on farmers and local businesses that the conservatives in particular are spreading. What are they referring to? Because I don't... Okay. That, once again, is really hard to explain because... <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, that beca- I mean, this is the kind of thing where that 73% number, uh, one of the things you have to assume is that that original principle, uh, like the original investment, is, well, immaculately conceived. Where does it come from in the first place? When you realize that, you know, that capital had to be accumulated within the, uh, the business, 
it already had extremely attractive tax treatment going in. If somebody's saving outside the corporation, which everyone else has to do, uh, you have to pay, you know, you have to pay income tax first. So that's a very weird thing. Lot of, many times, many times the uh, the question, next real question is, why are you doing that in the first place if you're paying 73% tax on it? There are better play, there are generally better ways to uh, save. Use you know use an RSP, use a tax-free savings account. Like that's what they're for. The only people who are really stuck with that are people who have really high incomes and have used up all their RSP and uh, TFSA uh, room, and they're looking for other ways of avoiding taxes. So at the end of the day, after these changes are made, I guess I should say if they're made as they're proposed right now, and I know we don't know a lot of the details because we don't have a bill yet, but presumably at the end of the day, is someone who is using a corporation, uh, one of these types of little corporations, either a doctor or a small business owner, or someone who's just doing it for um, investment purposes, are they still going to be paying essentially less taxes on their income than say I would on a salaried income? Uh, no, I think they, they'd be, that's the whole point is going back to that, um, the liberals increased the top rate, um, for, you know, for people earning $200,000 or more. One of the reasons uh, people didn't think that was going to generate a lot of income was that people expecting, uh, high earners to divert some of that income into, well, non-taxable areas like the private corporations. So the goal is to have more of that income being declared as employment income and subject to the personal income tax. So you know, they, they will definitely pay more taxes and they definitely well, they already do pay a higher tax rate uh, than they are now. So there's been a lot of talk about how this impacts the high earners, the doctors, the accountants, the lawyers, etc. How does this impact, you know, the person who has a convenience store on the corner? Not at all. Uh, these these things are only the only reason you'd ever do these uh, things is if you may have you know reasonably high incomes like incomes that would put you in the top one percent you know two hundred thousand dollars or more. There's just no reason to do it, anything else. If you have you know, an income like let's say you know one hundred and fifty or less, you're better off declaring it as income using RSPs and tax free savings accounts just like everybody else. You know the only reason to using these instruments is if you had incomes so high that uh, you you fill up and use up all of your RSP savings room and TFSA savings room. So basically what I'm hearing from you is that it's really easy if you're really wealthy in this country to avoid paying the same rate of taxes as somebody who is making a salaried income. Like if you're making a salaried income of $100,000 a year, you're probably paying more than someone who's able to do all this stuff and making like $250,000 a year. In principle, yes, I can see that happening. I, I mean, every case is certainly every case is, is unique. So you know, I, mean, I can I, I can easily imagine situations where that is the case. Yes. There's a lot of talk about um, the fact that small business owners should sort of be entitled to these loopholes because they're taking on risk. How do you address that argument, the risk argument? Well, th- that's why small businesses have those smaller, lower tax rates to, get to, to compensate for that. Of course, you know, the big return is the high incomes. You know, you actually do have the possibility of making a high income. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, people take risks in all kinds of businesses. I mean, you don't, you know, you don't go to journalism school to get a safe and steady <laughs> job. So... 
or you know, or even grad school, as far as that goes. I mean, I'm you know, I lucked I lucked out, but uh, most people aren't so lucky. So you know, people take risks all the time. the The big benefit of uh, starting your own business is the chance of doing really well. And well, yeah, if you get do really well, you get high income, and that's 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 the benefit. <laughs> So I think as a last question, I just want you to to reiterate a little bit of what you said at the very beginning there. At the end of the day, even after these changes, small businesses are still going to pay a lower tax rate in this country, partly to reward them for taking that risk. Sure. Yeah, the uh, this is the difference is like the the the, corp, the the companies and for ourselves, the small businesses themselves will always pay the lower tax rate. What's going on is like okay, but once that income has been generated by the lower, by the business, it gets transferred to the owner. Like it becomes income that you can use on, you know, to buy, you know, pay off their pay off their mortgage and buy a car and just buy groceries. That income should be treated just like everybody else's income generated in any other way. Stephen Gordon, professor of economics at Laval University, thank you so much for joining Commons today to help us explain this tax mess going on at the federal level. So I think the thing to me that stood out the most in the Gordon interview was actually the way that he debunked most of the arguments against this, that a lot of the smaller business owners and, you know, farmers and people like that are not the ones who are going to be the most deeply affected by this. The element that seems to raise the most conservative ire in particular is the second proposal um, limiting the ability to hold passive investment portfolios inside a private corporation. So the conservatives have been touting this 73%, 73% number, which really only would come into play if you were someone making over 200K is my understanding. In your, in your like investments that you have hit, like sort of shuffling it through your corporation, this isn't like you already pay a lower rate of tax on capital gains than normal income, than like salaried income. And I think that's such an important point of this too, is like, what we pay on like a salary, if you're a salaried employee somewhere, is usually a higher tax rate than, of course, there are exceptions to the rule depending on where you are and deductions and blah, blah, blah. I'm not speaking in absolutes here. But most people who pay taxes on a salaried income are paying a higher rate of income tax than people who are using this corporate structure. And I think that's a key takeaway and why the liberals are doing this. I mean, Ryan, I thought it was really funny when I started hearing there was some politician who was saying, you know, people are talking about this in every coffee shop in Canada. I can't remember who said it, but I remember it stuck in my mind. And I was like, I don't think anybody's talking about this in the coffee shop. Well, there's a reason why I'm sitting here silent. uh, Because... (laughs) I'm not talking about it. So, yeah, I don't understand. And, you know, the big lingering question for me is, is this headache worth it for the Liberals? Because there are a lot of angry people across this country. There are groups of doctors in hospitals across this country that are saying, yeah, maybe we don't come to work uh, should this happen. Maybe, Maybe we look at what our options are that way because, you know, this is really unfair targeting Uh, our practice and our business. And this is starting to cause a major headache. I think the people that are talking about it obviously don't have the facts, but also too, this seems to be a bit of a a grenade in the hand of the liberals. But I mean, initially, so the Carter Commission 50 years ago sought out to integrate the corporate and personal tax systems, but the system was supposed to neither encourage nor discourage the retention of earnings by corporations. You were supposed to be the same whether or not you incorporated or you didn't at the end of the day. And that's so not what's going on. No, we're supposed to have equality. And investing in a corporation or or incorporating should be a business decision, not so much a tax decision. But the way things are currently structured, 
it becomes a tax advantage to incorporate. Right. And I think that's something that Gordon was talking about when he talked about the elasticity of taxable income. And that's the idea that in Canada, it's actually easier to use various tax loopholes. It's perfectly legal to pay lower taxes, but we actually have a higher elasticity of taxable income than many other OECD countries. And I think that that's an important takeaway in this debate as well that gets lost because it is so nerdy. But basically, we make it easier for the rich or people who are able to access well-paid accountants and financial advisors to pay less taxes than they ostensibly should. And I think that that is a big part of this debate. And then I think the doctor's thing that Ryan was mentioning is a really important thing to talk a little bit about as well, because for them, it's the income sprinkling. And this all goes back to a doctor's deal that was done in Ontario to basically make up for the fact that doctors in Canada tend to make less than they do in the States. And they were like, to make up for the fact we have lower fees, you know, they made this tax structure so they could retain more of their income. And now it's become what doctors see as an entitlement. They can't legally strike, but they can do sort of work to rule kind of stuff that could really screw things over. I don't think it would help them in the court of public opinion. But if people are facing longer wait times at hospitals, I don't know if they care about the nuance of whether the doctors or the government is to blame. I mean, a few important things to note are that income sprinkling tends to happen only for the majority of income sprinkling happens for people in the top 10%. More than that. More the top five, top 1%. And then secondly, the point of incorporation is supposed to be to encourage productive investment. Which means what? (laughs) I mean, it's supposed to encourage businesses to start and to grow and to continue to grow. And but not necessarily to give them a break on their taxes for the earnings. No, no. Like we're not talking about charging businesses more money to conduct business. Like when we talk about raising the minimum wage or we talk about uh, uh, putting in increasing EI premiums or, or uh, workplace insurance requirements. We're actually talking about once the business is making a profit and a significant one at that, whatever they're not reinvesting into the company might face a slightly higher rate of tax at the end of the day now. But it's not going to be higher than what you would have paid personally. If you had, if it was salaried income. Yeah. That's my understanding. It likely wouldn't be. I think we need to qualify that because yes. taxes are so bloody complicated. But one thing that we could do is maybe just create a different system for doctors. Like it doesn't necessarily seem like these corporations, which are supposed to be helping businesses, are maybe the best vehicle to solve the problem of making sure doctors are staying in Canada and staying in Ontario. But why are doctors, I'm sorry, this is, I'm going to get slammed for this, but why are doctors precious little angels that get a different way of paying their taxes? Nurses don't get that. PSWs don't get that. The people who keep the hospitals running and work just as many hours and actually do more of the hands-on care don't do that. I love my GP. Doctors are hardworking. They worked really hard to get there, but they also are remunerated in a way that we don't so many of the other more precarious workers in our healthcare system, especially when we're talking about long-term care, especially when we're talking about home care workers. Those workers are often not getting paid because they're working for private companies when they're moving from place to place. Like our system is broken for the hands-on workers who are predominantly women, often predominantly women of color, and they're not being paid fairly. And yet let's give doctors a special tax system. I don't know. Isn't the, isn't the main argument about about doctors sort of having this tax system connected to the debt they incur while going to medical school and just the the absolute mega cost of being able to go through med school and and become a doctor 
I've heard that argument made by many doctors in the media that by the time you come out of medical school with a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt, it's almost like a thank you to people that go through medical school and actually finish and choose to serve their community in this way. Well, I mean, the better option would be not to saddle them with all this debt when debt they go through school. Right? If you decide to stay in Canada, if you decide to practice in a remote community, different levels of debt forgiveness for where you go. Actually, an issue we should dig into another episode that's being greatly misunderstood is how significant the move for free tuition for low to middle income people in Ontario has been. And uh, I think that's another topic for another day, because today it's all about taxes. And I think we've determined that taxes are good and the rich should pay more of them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by Ranger Games, a story of soldiers, family, and inexplicable crime, a book by author Ben Blum, who we have in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Ben. Tell us who Ranger Games is about. The book is about my cousin, Alex Blum. I grew up with him in Denver, Colorado. He was a very straight-laced kid. He dreamed since he was a small boy of becoming an army ranger, an elite soldier in the U.S. Army. And after working toward it for years, achieving it shortly after his 19th birthday, he threw it all away in the most bizarre, spectacular fashion by participating in an armed bank robbery under the leadership of a superior of his in the Rangers. I spent seven years trying to figure out how this guy that I knew and loved um, had come to be involved in such a crazy and devastating crime. And Ranger Games is the story of that quest. Ranger Games, the new book by Ben Blum, published by Doubleday Canada, is out in stores right now. Pick up your copy. Now we're going to go to the part of the show where we determine whether things are things. Is this a thing when you guys send us headlines or we talk about a story of the day and determine whether it is, in fact, a thing? So this one, there is no debate whether or not this is a thing. It definitely is a thing. There's no debate. And in fact, it's such a thing. I think we need to dedicate more time on the show to it. And I hope we do. The 60 Scoop, um, uh, which is... um, a terrible chapter in Canada's history where Indigenous children basically were scooped out of their families and moved uh, to non-Indigenous families has been settled, finally, to the tune of $750 million. It's rumored that uh, each survivor of the scoop will receive between $25,000 and $50,000 each for their claim. There is a process that is going to be in place next to the 60 scoop settlement There is a $50 million fund being earmarked for an Indigenous healing foundation to be set up. In short, the CFS system that we know today uh, was set up in a way that uh, ensured that children that were in uh, uh, poor homes, in homes where there was dysfunction or alcohol, where there were homes where parents weren't able to provide 
the in air quotes proper care for children these children were scooped and and moved away and today is the recognition of a very dark chapter in Canada's history I have a number of family members that are survivors of the 60s scoop and there are a number of people that we could probably get on the show to uh, give us a better sort of first-hand account of what this claim means but today is a good day for Indigenous people as this is finally recognized uh, in Canadian history. So definitely a thing that I look forward to digging into more down the line. Uh, One of those dark corners of our history that I'm glad to see us shining more and more of a light on. Uh, So another thing that's definitely a thing, we did want to address some of uh, the criticisms you guys had of our last episode. Um, In particular, I know that my exchange with Nikki Ashton on postal banking didn't come across that well. I should say I probably didn't come across that well. Well, guess what, Ashley, you were mean to Nikki Ashton. So (laughs) now I'm going to be mean to you. This is a thing. So one item sent to us by Commons listener Eva Shipper is there is a BC MLA who's proposing building a Canadian Mount Rushmore. I love this so much. <laughs> so, you know, BC MLA Laurie Thronus wants uh, his province to carve something into a mountain. And he doesn't want a human face, so not actual like old dead white guy presidents or prime ministers in our case. Um, One example he gave was a pair of uplifted hands so big you could drive a number of tour buses onto the palms. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that we're not good at building monuments in Canada. Like, look at the meltdown over the Mother Canada statue, which was just ugly. But... It also is not necessarily the best way to do a monument in 2017. I mean, we know better than to screw with an entire ecological system system. to build a monument than they did when they built Mount Rushmore. And then let's not even go into what the debate would be like to decide what goes on, what goes on it. Yeah, because I'm sure that someone would have a problem like the hands look like prayer or something. And I mean, I think it's I think it should not be a thing. Well, I just think that if if we do it, then, you know, who gets to decide who's, you know, are we going to put the hosers up? Are they the hosers palm, the trailer park boys? Who is going to be on the Canadian Mount Rushmore? And uh, I think it is a thing just because I would love to see the faces of Kim Campbell, Joe Clark and John Turner <laughs> smashed into the side of a mountain, whether it's their palms or their cheeks. Uh, who cares? I'll change my vote if it's the Trailer Park Boys. I'd be so for that. I want to see bubbles. I'd love to park my SUV (laughs) on Joe Clark's cheeks. (laughs) So as the uh, official arbiter of this is a thing, so we see Ryan is again in favor, Ashley against, I think that we should just leave our mountains the way they are and we can figure out a different way to celebrate whatever we choose to celebrate, be it Trailer Park Boys (laughs) or random large hands. So this is not a thing. Guys, I'm really tired this morning. Do you not get a good night's sleep? No. You probably would have gotten a better night's sleep if you'd use a Casper mattress. I'm on a Casper mattress and I'm asleep right now. (laughs) If you don't already know, Casper is a sleep brand that created a extremely comfortable mattress that is sold directly to consumers. So this eliminates the commission-driven, inflated prices, the upselling, trying to get you to buy this other fancy mattress that costs $100 more as opposed to this one. I hate shopping for mattresses because you have to negotiate. And I 
am so bad at negotiating, like trying to talk people down. It shouldn't be like car shopping. It no. should just be the car price of the mattress. Be like car shopping. And neither should mattresses. But it has an award-winning sleep surface. It was developed in-house. It's very fancy-looking, very sleek design, and delivered in one of those impossibly small, how-did-they-get-the-mattress-in-there boxes. And the best part is if you want to try a Casper mattress, it's absolutely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. So as a Commons listener, you can get a deal if you want to try out Casper mattresses. Visit casper.com slash commons and use the promo code commons for 65 Canadian dollars off the purchase of a mattress. Once again, visit casper.com slash commons and use promo code commons for 65 Canadian buckaroos off the purchase of a mattress. That's Casper like the friendly ghost. Terms and conditions apply. So one interesting point about taxation is that there aren't very many of us Canadians to pay for all the social services that one might desire. We are only 35 million people about the population of California. And this number could have been a lot higher or maybe should be a lot higher um, as proposed by Doug Saunders in his new book, Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Are Not Enough. I mean, the period when we were fur trappers, things were more harmonious in a certain respect. Certainly the French settlers here and trappers, they had a heavy-handed Christianizing mission, but they didn't have racial ideas. That idea of racial discrimination, the way we know it now, was kind of a late 19th century invention. And also the way of structuring Canada, where we started treating the, fir- the first peoples, the First Nations in, in Inuit and Métis as being problems to be managed or, or populations to be suppressed. That didn't come along till the sort of confederation era either. We had another option beginning in Canada, sort of taking shape right up to about the War of 1812, which was to have a country that was fairly diverse in its settlement, that welcomed people coming in from different colonies and different different countries, that had an open border with the newly formed United States with very open trade and commerce and a lot of people straddling both sides of the border that, that saw the building of a North American economy as being sort of core to what it did and that saw indigenous nations as being partners in confederation, which they were legally through our treaties. And and that, that sort of model maintained itself really until the very dark period after the War of 1812 reached its strange stalemate in 1815. And then something happened in Canada. And that's that's where my story begins. In the middle of that something happening, we slammed the door, the the border with the US shut. The Americans were didn't care about that too much. They would have been happy to keep it open. But we decided that's it. We are never going to have this democracy stuff come up. And that was a very explicit thing that people said. And that we we made a big mistake with these people. We should import an awful lot of rural British Anglophones, Anglicans, I should say, to fill the land as much as possible, not to build economies, not to build cities, but to occupy as much of the land so that it could have the British flag on it. And our role, and there were big debates about this in British Parliament and all this sort of thing, but it was eventually decided our role should be just to provide raw materials to the British Empire and that it should not be to be part of a North American economy or something. And that had a whole lot of consequences. 
It meant that the indigenous nations would be treated as problems to be managed. It meant that we would try to exist on subsistence farming and resource extraction strictly. And it meant that immigration campaigns would fi- would fail. And that's that's what sort of what came out of that. I opened the book with letters from my colonial ancestors in the 1830s where they would write home about taking up arms, sleeping with their rifles, preparing to shoot their neighbors, who they saw as traitors. They called them Americans, even though their neighbors were more Canadian than they were. They called them Americans because they favored democracy and public education and things like that. And they were very much responsible for setting up this system that made Canada a place that people generally wanted to leave. And 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 the history after that, from really until after the Second World War, was mainly a history of people leaving. We had huge immigration campaigns in Canada in the 1870s, in the 1920s, that failed completely, that, that attracted hundreds of thousands of people and that who then didn't stay or, or left for the United States. I mean, during most decades of Canada's first century, more people left Canada as emigrants, mostly to the United States, than came as, as immigrants. So it's, it's asking what, and we grew. I mean, you know, in spite of it, we grew because we had huge families and that sort of thing. But To work the land that they were covering, right? They were supposed to be coming to work the land, and that was part of it. Canada's immigration officials, you know, okay, we know that Canada's immigration was limited to British people and white people and Western European people and so on. That was not unusual in the time in, in colonies. What was unusual is that Canada really made sure it was just rural people. If you were British and white and Western European and all those things, but you had education or a skilled trade or you were urban or interested in starting a business, you were told, please don't come. Go to the United States instead. That place is for you. And that was this idea, you call it minimizing Canada. That was one of the ways it manifested was they didn't want people to come who would... Our governments didn't always set out, like both our pre-Confederation and post-Confederations didn't always set out to have a small population. But... A set of policies that I call the minimizing impulse tended to work that way. If you pushed hard on one of them, it would mean the whole row of dominoes would topple over. If you closed the border with the United States, or if you if you pushed people toward just a settlement toward being people just filling empty land rather than creation of economies and communities, uh, or if you pushed for ethnic homogeneity in your immigration, that would tend to cause the other things to, to come into play. And the, the economies created by that meant that it was very hard for people to stay around. The settlement of the prairies failed largely until the 20th century, even though they brought in tons of people and gave people 200 acres and money and all that sort of thing. Most of the people got up and left. There's a whole, and I have a little passage in Maximum Canada called, no, it wasn't the weather. Because those people, they learned that buying your farm equipment costs many times more than it did in the United States because of our tariffs. Shipping your harvest to market would make you a lot less money because this the CPR charged a fortune compared to other railways and, and and mainly the only market was Britain which was far away and didn't pay much so they moved to Dakota they moved to what is now North and South Dakota which saw probably had a larger population than Western Canada by the end of the uh, 19th century the Quebecois who left in droves in between you know the 1860s and 1930s like something like one fifth of of all Quebec Francophone uh, Canadians in Quebec left for New England, for the northern United States, to the point that most of the French language newspapers of North America were located in cities in New England by the early 20th century. And, and, And again, 
These weren't people leaving because of the weather. They wouldn't have gone to New England and, and North Dakota if, if they were leaving for the weather. And you blame a lot of that on a, a protectionism mm -hmm. and a colonial attachment to Britain, whether it's for the immigrants themselves or for where exports are going. And basically this idea that Canada shouldn't develop, mm -hmm. um, which I found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the idea of us developing an urban industrial economy was was kind of taboo. I mean, in the 1940s, like after the Second World War, when we started to realize, okay, our economy is now booming, we're attracting people, there were big debates uh, that involved famous people like Harold Innes and, and so on about whether it would be a good idea for Canada to, to expand and to have, you know, what if we had a population of 20 million by the end of the 20th century? Well, the, people like Harold Innes would say that, was, that would be catastrophic. Um, we're a nation of farmers. We would stop producing food. Our cities would become slums and, and full of the, those ethnic groups that the Americans have. And, and, and it would ruin the essence of, of, of what is Canada. And that debate was, was a really big formative one. I mean, it had followed an era when we pretended to be rural. You know, in the, early, in the Laurier years, which weren't as golden as people think, though they were a time they were the time of the greatest economic growth and, and population growth Canada's ever seen. I mean, we will never have immigration like in the Laurier years. If we had if we had Laurier scale immigration now, we'd have something just shy of two million people a year coming in. Wow. Even the most hot headed like population tripling scenarios that you see now call for an increase to somewhere in the four hundred thousands right now. So so we saw and they weren't people who were considered white at the time, right? They were, I mean, British people were the minority of immigrants for the first time and, and, and forever after that. They were Ukrainians and Italians and, and people like that. A, quite a large number of Chinese and Japanese and Sikhs entered Canada then too, even though the, the, there was huge racial discrimination against them and so on. And remember, Ukrainians and Italians weren't white people then. They were seen as being civilizational threats and all that stuff. So that had happened. We, we had already become a country that wasn't very British and especially that wasn't very rural or agrarian by the first decade of the 20th century. But it really took until those decades right after World War II before we finally had the conversation about what, what we already were. We were already urban. We were already industrial. We were already multi-ethnic. By 1967, a fifth of Canadians were what we call the third force, the, the people whose ancestors were not British or not French and not indigenous. And I think that's part of the story of Canada now is, is, is that it is diversified enough to realize that it needs to be more diversified, right? This is sort of pulling ourselves up by the shoelaces logic of Maximum Canada. Our cities actually are low enough population density now that they feel crowded. And that they I loved that argument that um, you close the book by saying you, you open it talking a bit about being crowded on the King Streetcar, or, mm. you know, in in Vancouver and feeling like there isn't enough space. And you close it by saying population will actually improve life in our city. Sure. The reason why the reason why the Lionsgate Bridge is a constant traffic jam, or or, or Don Valley Parkway in Toronto, or, or or get trying to get off the island in Montreal is not because there are too many people. It's because there aren't enough people in enough density to support the forms of rapid public transit that would actually solve those problems. And if you think about it while you're stuck in traffic, it's, it's fairly obvious, right? Even if you personally never want to take a subway, if we had subway lines robust enough to cover those areas, we're sort of where New York was at a certain point in our three largest cities before the 1930s, where it actually got big and crowded enough that it, and it hadn't amalgamated enough that people were just stuck. People couldn't go anywhere until the massive building of subway lines that allowed it to feel like a less crowded and less and less claustrophobic uh, place. So 
Um, it's not like more people are, are, are the solution to every problem or anything like that, but having the right clusters of people in the right, live in, with the right skills living in the right places can solve some of our problems. And recognizing that population growth is something that probably will happen means that we can start to engage in the mental exercise and the policy exercise we need to, to say, okay, what, what do we need to do to make it happen? You talk a lot about that, the tension of, of not just that 35 million people isn't enough, but it isn't enough for the space mm -hmm. and the geography of it. That if we had, you know, 35 million people in Southern Ontario, you could have a very ro robust market. Or 35 million people in the, in the greater Toronto area. Yes. Right. <laughs> then, then it would be a little bit like uh, Mumbai or something like that, or like the Rhineland in Germany. So what do you think is the biggest consequence of the fact that we have had such stunted growth? We've had these fits and starts and then always seem to, until, you know, the mid 20th century, rolled backwards. I call it um, a deficit of capacity because we need to recognize Canada has a very high living standard. We're not suffering. Some, well, some people are, but we keep them out of the way and don't think about them, right? But, but generally speaking, Canada, it, you know, it, it cannot be called a victim of anything at the moment, but it lacks the capacity to manage the problems of the future. It lacks the market size to be able to survive in a post-globalization world that, with, with less friendly trading partners with the United States who might become less defendable. It lacks the fiscal base to support governments doing things that governments will need to be doing, which includes shifting toward a carbon neutral economy. It lacks the population density in its urban areas to do a lot of important things, including shifting to green transportation, green heating, green energy, and that sort of thing, and building up communities that are tight enough, that, tight enough knit that avoid segregation and, and, and isolation. Uh, our cities were built not to be tight knit places. They weren't planned really very much in that sense. They were all post-automobile cities for the most part, except for tiny little cores of them. And they're very ill-suited for the current populations in many ways. So the combination of small market market size, small taxpayer base size, low population density, and I would add, not to be selfish as somebody employed in the culture and media industries, but small audience size is an issue too. And that's almost the catch-22 at the end of the book where you talk about if we really want to maximize Canada that to attract more immigrants, especially to our big cities, we need to invest in developing spaces where they can thrive. And yet we don't have <laughs> the tax base now to make the full investments that we need, or even investments not just in attracting immigrants. You also talk a lot about boosting our fertility rate and the economic boon that that, that has had in Quebec by investing fully in a provincial daycare program. But a lot of these things just simply aren't something we can afford with our size. There's almost a, a feedback there's, loop There's there, a pulling right? yourself up by the bootstraps yeah. logic to a lot of this stuff. We need to make upfront investments if we want to have a larger population, which will itself provide us with the economy and the revenues we need to support that population. We need to start. And that's, that's sort of the overarching lesson of the forward-looking half of, of Maximum Canada, is that we need to pretend that our population is going to triple. I'm not necessarily saying we need to triple our population. It might happen anyway, even if we decide not to. You, you, you say that that 100 million number mm -hmm. is one that, that is quite feasible, and you compare it to other countries. Yeah, it wouldn't require mass immigration. It wouldn't require open borders. I mean, we've actually... The 100 million number, which, which is partly my fault, 
is something that's been studied a lot in recent years. The 100 million thing, I sort of seeded the air with that idea in 2001, and a whole lot of people ran with it. A whole lot of journalists ran with it. I heard cabinet ministers in both the conservative and the liberal government run with that idea. There's now a think tank in Toronto, the Century Initiative, devoted entirely to that idea of 100 million. Uh, A government advisory committee on economic growth last year advocated a growth plan that would take us to 100 million by the end of the century. So in some way, I'm sort of reigning in the Frankenstein monster that I, I didn't completely create, but that I helped you know, get up, break its chains and start running around in the fields and saying, okay, this is what we actually need to do. And it's, it's actually a lot harder than what we did when we tripled the population over the last 70 years. To do it over the next 80, we need to do a bunch of things. But here's the trick part of it. Here's the sort of twist in the plot in that those investments we need to make, those things we need to do if we're going to triple our population, they're all things we need to do if we don't triple our population if we freeze it. Our children and grandchildren are going to have huge problems with shortage of housing supply, with limited urban in- infrastructure, with a lack of transition to green energy, with a lack of recognition of skills, with a lack of income support for a more fragmented labor force. The things that I say we need to be done for tripling of population actually need to be done for for a, a, a non-increasing population as well. They are actually crises that we actually face now. So to say we need to make expensive of upfront investments to pave the way for a growing population to do that pulling yourself up by the bootstraps thing, you also have to acknowledge that we actually need to make those investments anyway. How much of this is Robert Borden's fault? <laughs> I can't believe that guy's on the $50 bill still. And, and um, He sounds terrible. Like, actually, like, like you, McDonald and Borden and Diefenbaker all come off pretty poorly in the book. But Borden, the most so, as someone who I think I only really knew as the guy who was in charge during World War One. And this wasn't some anti-Tory drive, by the way. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's just, it's, just, it's just a coincidental thing. And, or uh, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the battle of ideas reached its peak in the in the Pearson Diefenbaker battles when not when Diefenbaker was the prime minister but when he was in opposition that's sort of that we, we there've been a number of periods in Canada where we've gone back to fundamentals and we've had just a war of ideas the 1910s the 1940s and then the 1960s where we we really just went hammer and tongs and said okay what what is Canada what should it be and so on I, and part of what i'm trying to say is let's let's reignite that let's actually ha- let's actually have a loud fight over over this question now because it it it's it's worth having it's worth be- before we proceed with something before we have like piecemeal things on resources or or cities or something like that maybe let's have a loud argument about what Canada is so Robert Borden's the worst, and who should replace him on the fifty dollar bill? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think I think we need to elect the future prime minister who will be the person who should be on the fifty bill, and 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 I don't know what her name is yet, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, uh, I, I mean part of this argument is that the the important part, the great parts of Canada's history, and the important parts of Canadian Canada's history are in the future. That's your Commons episode for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. You can follow me at D Rodrigue on Twitter. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y, last name C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. And I'm Ryan McMahon. You can follow me at RM Comedy. I refuse to spell that out for you. Follow us on Twitter at CanadaLandCommons. That's CanadaLandCMNS. 
Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please support us. making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.